This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Fiona Aviart. Fiona is the powerhouse behind Outback Lamb, a vertically integrated farming business focusing on single-origin, pasture-fed lamb that she runs with her husband, Bill, as part of their commercial sheep and cropping operation, West Point, near Tullamore. In this episode, you'll hear how Bill and Fiona thought about succession and decided to grow their business up rather than out to secure the future for their four children. Fiona also shares with us how they've used their love of lamb to build a brand that talks personally to each of their customers and how embracing social media has allowed them to extend the reach of their paddock to plate story. You'll also learn how she banded together with two like-minded country businesses to buy a refrigerated truck and to deliver their produce weekly to their loyal Sydney customers and more and more local customers along the way. Local Land Services District Vet, Jill Kelly, caught up with Fiona on one of her recent delivery runs through Dubbo. So I'm here today with Fiona Aveyard, farmer and founder of Outback Lamb. So you're from Tullamore. Tell me about your farm. So I always say we're very traditional, mixed farming. We are wheat and sheep, we've got merinos, and we also run the Prime Lamb Enterprise from First Cross Use, which we call Outback Lamb. And so was that a family farm or did you buy it? West Point, where I live, is next door to Aurora Park, where I grew up. And Aurora Park joins Wards Rock, which was the original Williamson family land holding that they um, settled there in 1886. So we're not actually on the original block. Wards Rock's held by the people now and has been for many years. But there was a father here, uh, James Williamson owned Wards Rock, and then his son settled in the properties surrounding and are descendants from them. Wow, that's a long, long history. So you're, you're local. We're definitely local. <laughs> and even the block I live on, West Point, with my husband Bill and our four kids, originally part of the original holding, but it was cleaved off post-World War II as a soldier settlers block. Mm-hmm. And the same as Warrenella, the property that my sister lives on that we have in partnership with her. Great. So what exactly is Outback Lamb? We call it a paddock to plate. When we started off, we were doing boxed lamb, just, you know, had a web page and sold boxed lamb to our friends. Uh, but we kind of always had a vision that we would not be like doing farmers markets and that type of thing because we're fundamentally farmers. That's what we do. But we started out back lamb as... It was kind of in response to a couple of things. Firstly, being at Tullamore and it's a... I wouldn't be alone in being a small country town that really struggles in terms of population and employment and not having many people. And it really feels the pinch when there's a drought or when farmers are doing it's tough because there's no industry around the town per se. 
and we were looking at dropping from a three-teacher to a two-teacher school and uh, it was just after my husband and his family had gone through their succession plan and uh, which was, you know, worked marvellously. Like uh, it, there was no dramas at all. The boys, the block was split into three. The boys all knew what they were going to get. The sister got some off-farm assets. It was perfectly fine. But I, I remember saying to Bill, well, what are we going to do for our four kids? Because if we keep splitting the block into four and then everyone's got to buy a little bit more to stay viable, like the population's going to keep carving exponentially and well it's like the Irish potato famine you know <laughs> we'll end up with our nearest neighbours we might as well live at Longreach as, as Tullamore yeah. <laughs> and so we really then when we had a family meeting we all sat down and had a bit of a think about what the next gen farming might look for the next generation and we really tried to be visionary and have a big big creative so we were like well rather than expanding horizontally which we'd been doing by buying up adjoining properties and trying to increase productivity and you're looking you're pushing your livestock all the time you're trying to buy better equipment it's this kind of it's a bit of a treadmill like it's very there's a lot of people on that treadmill though that's traditional sort of farming succession isn't it it is and I just don't know if it's a if it's an answer and I always use the excuse when you look at what's the problems facing today's generation and it's you know food security and food safety tied into that and climate change and wherever you stand on climate change like it doesn't matter if you do believe it or you don't believe it or whatever I happen to you know believe the science and so as farmers we're really on the front foot there we're at the cusp of having some real impact in terms of what we can do for you know the future generations and how and how that might be played out. So it's really, it's kind of. I mean, it's it's big picture stuff, and it's really. I don't feel like I'm saving the world one sausage roll at a time, <laughs> but it's also everyone's got to do their little bit. And yeah. it, it came on. We also at the same time as we were starting out back lamb. There's a lot of noise outside of farming. Like you get like green activists and this super woke crowd and the vegans and and they have an idea about what farming is and and what meat consumption is and what we do and it's so far removed from fact that it's laughable like we I'm not alone like all farmers we laugh at it it's just ludicrous but what is happens if we don't we don't have the voice if we don't tell our own story and if we leave our story to be told by some of the fringe players who might have a good audience but they are pushing another barrow like maybe regen ag or different stuff like that which is all you know important there's a crossover and it's really important We'd want our story to be told as traditional mainstream farmers, what everybody's doing. We kind of just have to get over ourselves a bit and speak up. And I'm not kidding anyone. Look, I really, I know I'm here on the podcast today, but like I'm not a natural with the media and it's really taken me a long time to post images on Instagram and and to, you know, get over a little bit of noise from activists and that type of thing and and not be bothered by it because it is really hard. But early on in the piece, I got some professional advice off marketing comms expert here in Dubbo, Kim Goldsmith, and she showed me all the data of the stuff that we'd post. She broke down what worked and what didn't. And like every time I put a picture of myself up, the response was almost double. And it's about connecting with the people and telling our story. Wow. So it sounds like there's a there's a few driving forces behind the concept of Outback Lamb. When did it when did it start? How how old is Outback Lamb? So I started it at the end of 2017 and didn't really kick off till probably autumn in 2018. So we've been going 3 years. Oh wow. So that's really young and you started that's 
that's in the middle of a drought too. So tell me about Outback Lamb and what it involves today. It's not just selling box lamb anymore. No, no. We moved very quickly into doing wholesale lamb. And part of what I did when we were starting out, there was a course put on by the Dubbo Shire Council. It was called Regional Platters. And it was basically social media and marketing your business. And there's a lot of people very similar to Outback Lamb around the Dubbo area. And I didn't know that. But, you know, once I got into that world, I, I could see how, you know, I wasn't the only one thinking the same way. And so we did that course with the um, regional platters guys and the culmination of it was we had to do a pitch and the winners of that pitch got $10,000 and then there was also a People's Choice Award that got $5,000 and our pitch was to buy a refrigerated truck for hanging carcasses and we collaborated with the Gourmet Goat Lady from Coli and Farmer Brown's Pastured Eggs from Wellington. Uh, we won it. We won fifth, both prizes Woo-hoo. and bought ourselves a little refrigerated truck, which is out in the car park now. Oh, great. So it's still on the move. So still on the move. We move a lot of produce from the Dubbo area. Uh, we do extraordinary pork into Sydney every fortnight. Kim kisses grassland poultry from Wellington. We bring stuff back for Alchemy and Dubbo and also our own produce. I've moved away a little bit from the full carcass in the drought. So, I mean... And anyone who's got second cross lambs will really understand this. Like it's, you need to meet that really premium high-end market. They have a very specific demand for what they want. They want a carcass between 22 and 24 kilos. It's got to be properly finished. It's got to be really schmick, a tidy job in processing. We were in the drought, but we still had feed and we, you know, we could finish them off properly in the feedlots and all that sort of stuff. So it was no problem because we're running like hundreds through the draft. I could cut out 80, weigh them and pick 30 and they could go to the processes every week. So I don't want to delude anyone. Like anyone can do it, but it is a lot of work. And we were doing that every week and, and supplying Burke Street Butchery here in Dubbo and then doing carcasses into Wollongong and Sydney. Wow. So tell me what your average day looks like. It's hard to keep all your balls in the air, I'd imagine. By the time you are the farmer and the marketer and the delivery truck driver, like, tell, me, tell me what your day or your week runs like. Pretty normal. I'm an early riser. I come from an equine background, so used to early starting. I usually wake up around five Um, My personal interest is current affairs and politics and that type of thing. So I like to keep abreast and be reasonably well-read. So I, you know, peruse the papers and online and and just see what's happening in the world. Skim, you know, Instagram, Twitter, kind of think about what posts I might do that week or, you know, that type of thing and do a little bit of planning. But also it's, you know, two hours or an hour and a half that is for myself without all the noise and chatter that goes on around. So I'll do yeah, my emails. Yeah, because you and Bill have got four kids, haven't you? So it'd we be do. chaos once they're all up. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a three-ring circus. They're pretty, they're good country kids. Like they're pretty self-sufficient and like I can get home late and they'll, they'll be like, there was nothing for afternoon tea so we made a cake, you know, oh. that kind of thing. And I'll ring them and I'll say, look, I'm held up in the paddock, have some cereal for tea or they'll go, oh, no, we did scrambled eggs or, you know, they can make two minute noodles and all that sort of thing. Yeah, so the kids get up around seven and we they're on the bus and gone by eight and then we kind of kick into just the, like the normal kind of things. But part of 
Outback Lamb is this sort of transparency in our operations and it's about sharing that story and saying to people, we don't do anything that we're embarrassed about, come and have a look. And so we operate farm tours as well. So um, if we've got any farm tours that week, I'm sort of, you know, planning around meals because we often do a morning tea or a lunch depending on what time they've booked in for. And who's coming on your farm tours? Are they tourists or school groups or who do you get? We've had a couple of school groups. We mainly get generally people out of Sydney who are coming out to the regional area, maybe to visit friends and that type of thing, who might be staying in town, like in parks or Dubbo Park, sends a lot of stuff our way. Mm -hmm. And they just want to have that real genuine farm experience. It's not necessarily a petting zoo, but, and that was also one of the things that really took me a little while to get my head around and a lot of farmers will really understand this too. Like when you've got visitors, you always think you've got to be shearing or doing something a bit exciting that the fact of the matter is like we just, we'll take them on any day and we say we do a variety of things. Can't guarantee you'll see everything today, but whatever we're doing on the farm, you can be part of and we'll take you around and show you. So they just kind of, if we're in the drought, we're feeding sheep every day. So luckily they had something to do. Yep. But we've got uh, some Indigenous rocks up on the top end of our place. So we go up there and have a, you know, barbecue lunch or do all that sort of stuff. It's just really simple, yep. but it's very new to them and looking at everything with fresh eyes. So everything's interesting, even if it's really boring for us and we're just going, oh, do you want to have a look at this mob of sheep or that mob of sheep or here the crop is or, you know, the planes are coming for spraying or the, here they are, you know, working up or we're going to light a fire this afternoon to do a cool burn. Like it just doesn't – whatever's going, like yep. it just doesn't have to be stop the world exciting. Gosh, I bet they appreciate that. I kind of feel like years ago most people in the city had a relative on a farm that they would visit in the holidays or they had some connection and these days they don't. So opportunities like that are probably pretty important. I think so. And and again, it's like, this is, I keep saying this all the time, but we're not doing anything unique or special. Like we're just going about our business like normal farmers, but to invite people in. And it probably started when we had backpackers and they were like, you know, we'd have, I've got, I'm a big gardener, so I've got the veggie garden. And they'd be like, I always thought, you know, organic was the best. I'm like, organic's good if everything else in your system is working well. But sometimes, you know, like a timely spray can be really opportune. And just because something's organic doesn't necessarily mean it's premium. It just means you've taken spray out of the mix. Not always. Like, and we're really careful. Like, I'll use a bit of tomato dust or something like that. And I'd really do try not to use spray on the, on the veggie garden. But we're also... Like, and we use horse manure rather than artificial fertilisers and all that sort of thing. And so for them, it was a real eye-opener. And it's kind of made me realise that people, they don't really know much about where their food comes from and, and the science behind what you're doing. Like, it's, you know, we're not all environmental vandals who get up in the morning and go, how can I spend $10,000 today? I oh, know I'll do another spray. Mm. Like, we don't want to do it any more than the next person, but it's... Uh, yeah, that's not the perception that people have of farmers. Yeah. So I'm overly amazed at your website. It's really, really great. Where did the website come from? It's it's amazing. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I did it myself. <laughs> but I was, um, when we were first starting out back then, I was a little bit daunted about what that might cost me. And I was thinking, God, a good webpage has got to cost 10 grand. And, you know, I need some starting capital and blah, blah, blah. That'll be five grand. And I just remember I went to a talk that Mark Gardner did it from Vanguard Business Services. And he said, you know, it doesn't have to cost you a lot to start up a business. Like it's $1,500 to register and all that it turned out to be a bit less because I did it myself on 
online, you know, like, and I talked to a girlfriend of mine and she said, just use Wix. Like there's plenty of platforms out there where you can do your own website. And I was like, oh, radio, like, and so I always say, I think I'm a bit of a one trick pony. I don't hire me to do your, <laughs> anyone else's <laughs> webpage, but I can, what I can do is tell our story and show it. And I copy shamelessly. Like I look at web pages I like and things that, you know, that have jumped out at me and I try to do the same thing. And I often say like, you know, if the world ended tomorrow and uh, my webpage was discovered, it'd look like, you know, a toddler got into the crayons, look at the back end of it. Like it's all, it makes no sense and it's, but it kind of works. <laughs> yeah, it looks impressive. And I think the most important thing is the integrity behind it. Like you've got beautiful photos of your kids doing normal kid things on farms and they don't look terribly staged. They look really authentic. I use my iPhone nearly for everything now, video included. We used to, when I first started, I got my cousin who's a photographer to come out and she just, the shit out of everything. And we had a heap of photos of cooked food and sheep and, and things like that, that we could use for different things. But essentially I just, as for iPhones got better, like even in the last three years, I just use it for everything. It's it's good and, and suits us because I don't work well with scheduling things and all that sort of stuff. I do like it to be a bit more spontaneous. So, you know, I can go two weeks and not have a post and then I'll do three in a, a week, you know, like it can be quite busy, but just depending on what's going on. Sometimes you're so busy, you forget to take pictures. <laughs> yeah, you do. I find that all the time with my job. Or sometimes you're just so dirty, if you, you, you haven't got a spare clean hand to take a picture. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> and so tell me about some stories of some connections that you've made with consumers via Instagram or social media or we're not regenerative farmers, but I love a lot of the principles of regen and it's certainly part of like what we like in terms of multi-species and soil health and, and looking to the future and that sort of thing. So I like, I do like a lot of that, but we are different to a lot of farmers because people who are doing farmers markets or supplying butchers are usually highly principled people on small acreage lots who don't have the volume that we can do. So we generally have been able to do that. I mean, it changed a little bit with the drought, but because it is so much work, there's not a lot of people doing what we do. You need more hands on deck and all that sort of thing, but we're, you know, gradually getting there. <laughs> How much of your flock goes into the outback lamb trade? Do you still sell through regular markets we as well? We do, and that's, I mean, it's a lovely safety net. And also, and don't worry, the irony wasn't lost on me, like in a drought where lamb prices were hitting record highs and increasing every week, the ludicrous idea of trying to value add to a product that was already increasing in value without you doing any work was, you know, fairly insane. But, you know, the, that irony is not lost on me. But it's also, we didn't push it a lot in terms of like a long vision and we're looking at the next generation and how farmers might sell and, and that type of thing. And I really think that branding and marketing and people's connection with the production story is a big part of selling to the consumer. And I say this to people all the time, like, I mean, I shop at Coles, but anyone who's in the supermarket, like when you reach, when you're in that meat section, you're reaching for some meat, like stop and think about it because the butchers are the absolute heroes of my story and everyone else's because it's guys like Ray from Burke Street Butchery, Anthony at Victor Churchill, Grant at Feather and Bone. They are all guys that are, are passionate about the 
way that food is produced and they're talking to their the real link up to, with the customer. They're artists, they're great butchers, they do what they do. And farmers, we're notoriously hard to deal with. Like we're hard to contact you. you we check our emails every second or third day. We're out of range with our mobile service. Like it's for a butcher, it would be so much easier to go to a wholesaler, put in your order on a Monday on a Friday, get it in on the Monday for the week and you know you, what you're selling. And But those guys, you know, they deal with a dozen different farmers who they would have to communicate with in a dozen different ways and that makes their job hard but they're so passionate about what they do and I really advocate to people to, you know, in the same way that I'm not saving the world one sausage roll at a time, that the consumer dollar is so powerful and every dollar you spend has a real impact. So, Spend it wisely. Yeah, you can yeah. really make a big difference to a business and, and their trades and their people that come through and, you know, like it's a really wonderful industry to be involved in and, and it should be supported, I think, widely. Mm, I agree. So you've mentioned sausage rolls a couple of times. Tell me about Outback Lamb's latest extension. So I did a program called Farmers to Founders, which took our idea We'd done a beer festival. We'd been asked through Park, uh, Dubbo Shire Council to supply some local produce. And, you know, everyone wants lamb chops on a barbecue, but sadly there's only <laughs> some very limited number per sheep. And we're all about uh, whole carcass consumption and really utilising all the animal and that type of thing, not just for the profit, but also for the ethical reasons. But it's also a big part of the profit is to use all of it. So we said, oh, what can we do? I know, let's mince up a sheep and we'll make some sausage rolls. And they were a huge hit and we get asked for them all the time time we did a couple of bush tucker day at trundle the jimmy barnes concert at tullamore where people want local produce that's quick and easy and so we collaborated with condo bakery and do them and, and now we're doing them more and more and so after doing farmers to founders that was a bit of a um a leg up into the whole idea of being a lot more commercial and doing a value add that can really bring another aspect to what we do with outback lamb and that's amazing. So it sounds like you've you've reached out to people and found all these awesome little collaboration opportunities. What's your advice for other people that might want to do that? Do you just ring up and cold call and ask? I would read extensively, like, you know, find your audience and that's how things have come to my attention. You're just talking to people generally about, you know, saying, oh, I'm thinking we might do a bit more with the sausage rolls. What do you reckon? And it was the MLA that said to me, oh, there's this thing, Farmers to Founders, that we're supporting. And so they recommended it to me and I did the application. And in the same way, I'm currently doing another project with the CSIRO, which is it's called Innovate to Grow. We're just kicking off now, but it's basically came to me through the Parkshire Council and they did some introductions and because we're talking about building an abattoir, a micro abattoir on the place and, and doing our own little factory where we can package up all our stuff and that type of thing because, you know, we're sort of getting to that scale now where that's the next, the next step. step. And so the Innovate to Grow is about working with the CSIRO on latest technology, what's available out there, how to access funding for that type of thing. And hopefully it'll really, again, be that leg up into the next stage for us. So things, I have been incredibly lucky and I think that is sometimes it, that, you know, things fall in your lap, but it seems to be, you know, serendipitous and, and things work for a reason. Yeah. And one door leads to the next door and the next door leads to exactly. the next door. So, you know, Mate. just put yourself out there, I think, is the main thing. <laughs> yeah. And I guess if you looked back in 2017 and saw Outback Lamb today, you, do you think you would have envisaged that only just three years down the track, this is where you'd be? No, I, it's, it's really crazy. But 
and it is, again, it's timing. Like you couldn't have done it 10 years ago. Like I started off again doing Canoundra, the micro abattoir there, because you could do, there was no minimum number of kills. So even though it was probably costing me money to drive over there with three sheep that we'd had ordered online that week, we didn't have to book in, you know, 50 at a commercial kill or, you know, that type of thing. So the opportunities are there now for other people to do similar things. My picture for ag is that regions will be identifiable a little bit like wines and that type of thing. We know the Hunter Valley is, you know, good for this. Orange is good for the white, high-altitude type wines. Munch is great for reds, the Margaret River and West, you know, that type of thing. And I think that regions will, because Australia's not that old, we're just finding our feet and developing our own unique regional flavours and that type of thing. And I, and I think that'll be our natural evolution as people will identify regions with different areas of production. That's a really interesting concept. Do you think the recent COVID pandemic and the lockdown has pushed more consumers to look locally for produce and also like holiday experiences and things like that? Have you seen more interest recently due to those factors? I think that definitely in terms of a holiday destination, like regional areas are going to experience an unprecedented boom. And we're not really geared up for that kind of thing in a lot of ways. Like labour is such, it's not just harvest labour, like on the long weekend, you know, a lot of pubs, the staff that they have like to have the weekend off because that's often when weddings are and that type of thing. Like if tourists are coming out, there's often, like certainly, you know, in my area, you might not necessarily get a feed at the pub because the kitchens are closed while people have the weekends off and so I think things are going to change really dramatically and business is catching up with in terms of the traffic that we're seeing out of Sydney and in terms of what people are eating I think there's a excuse the pun like a real hunger there for people to understand more the source of their food and and how that happens like it's important to me that we don't necessarily as we do in so many things model America where we're moving into like high production massive feedlots and all that sort of thing which have their place there's no doubt about it like it that's it was a revolution. That's how we've fed an emerging middle class over the whole world. And there'll definitely be, you know, all shenanigans aside with China, like the, we can hopefully reap the benefits there as well. But is it the best solution for the planet? Is it the best solution for the animal? There's a few questions there, like it really needs to be addressed in, in many different ways. And I like how traditional mixed farming operates because, you know, you're able to minimise your spray by using stock to grace. You're concerned about microbes and soil health and all that sort of thing because the benefit flows through to your pregnant and lactating livestock. We, we cover a lot of bases and the mixed farm maybe is coming into its own in terms of a lot of elements to it that can really work well together in a modern and emerging type of agriculture. There must be a lot of personal satisfaction too in running an enterprise like this where you not only feel that you're doing the right thing by the animal and the soil and in your farm, you get to see it right to the end. You know, you get to see that animal virtually end up on someone's plate. Well, it's totally weird because, I mean, and I've been a farmer all my life, but in terms of my knowledge, and we kill our own sheep on the farm, but in terms of my own knowledge of the process in the abattoirs and how that worked and what that looked like and, and understanding all the elements beyond the farm gate, I was very ignorant. Like I knew very little about any of it and I'm sure I'm not alone or maybe I am, but it's been an eye-opener for me and a great education as well to be part of that. We criticise the consumer for not knowing where stuff comes from, but I'm just as guilty by not knowing where it goes to. 
So I know giving back is really important. You're pretty involved in your local community. How important is that to you and your family? Yeah, it is. Well, I think anyone who's lived in an area for a long time, it's just, it's unstated, you know, like you just get involved with committees or do whatever you have to do because things don't happen unless everyone pulls together and gets it done. So whether it be swimming club or preschool committee or anything, but we're also focused on a big, on a higher level as well. We're in, we affiliate with an organisation called Thankful for Farmers, who so for every sausage roll we sell, proceeds go to them, and they distribute that not just in Australia but around the world, supporting farmers who are, you know, less fortunate than us and people who are working in the agricultural industry, and supporting projects where they give them better empowerment of their future as well, which I think is really important. Mm. Absolutely. So if you walked into a really fancy restaurant in Sydney that had outback lamb on the menu, what outback lamb dish would you preferentially eat? I do love like a seasoned herb rack of lamb, that type of thing. I'm a big fan at home of slow cooking, but that's because I'm a little bit lazy. (laughs) (laughs) I can put it on in the morning and not think about it. But yeah, you can't go past a chop really, can you? Like, or, you know, that cutlet kind of thing. It's, if I'm, and I never get sick of lamb. Like, I think in New South Wales, we're probably a bit the equivalent of a Queenslander who can eat steak morning, noon, and night. I could only eat steak a couple of times a week, but I could eat lamb morning, noon, and night. never tire of it like it's uh, yeah I'm the same maybe it's what you grew up on too yeah a bit weaned onto it and that sort of thing yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely so basically what you're telling me is there'd be lots of good options on that (laughs) restaurant menu in Sydney yeah it wouldn't matter what you chose so we've got some guys coming out next week from a restaurant called Three Blue Ducks and they're going to be cooking up some lamb on a spit at our place so that's for a tv show that they're doing which is a travel and cooking show and that's with Channel 10. I don't know very much about it, but it'll be great to ex- see what a, a fancy chef would do with the lamb. <laughs> yeah, you're quite involved with the media. You often get media opportunities thrown at you. Do you enjoy that? It's funny. I do and I don't. I like that we get asked. It's That's flattering. And it's also like another job. So, And it's not my natural comfort zone, but it's also very much part of what we're trying to do. So it's part of that process of just kind of getting over yourself a little bit and not being too self-conscious and and telling that story and being proud of the story that we're telling. And and it's not just your story, it's the story of Australian agriculture. So you're doing maybe everybody a favour? I think so. And, and that's I strongly encourage everyone to do the same, like whether you're posting stuff on social media or like we've got to be our own voice because if we don't fill that void, that, that story wants to be told. So I think it's important when people ask us that we make the time to share it because otherwise they're not going to get the real story. There's a bit of love for the sensational story in the media too, isn't there? So if there's something that's dying or disastrous or it tears at the heartstrings, that gets front page There's so news. many cliches and some, and I have to say like sometimes commercial television and that sort of thing really feed into that. And, you know, maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe we are the ultimate cliche, I don't know. But uh, I think... Like, you know, I don't see any overalls or a pitchfork or a banjo. We're, we're good. We're good. <laughs> it's that's so true. I, I just think I, I read last week Annabelle Hickson's doing a new magazine called Galar, and she said she really wanted to showcase the amazing and fabulous women that she knows. 
And I think that's so true. Like you you scratch beneath the surface of regional towns and Tullamore, Trundle are no exception. There's some amazingly educated, well-travelled, sophisticated women, particularly women, but, you know, men as well, but particularly women out there who can bring so much to that environment. And it's really important that we tap into those reserves and really, you know, get them doing the right thing. And, and also we have a hunger for it, I think, that Australia's not very old, but, you know, I live in a two-bedroom weatherboard farm cottage, you know, post-World War Two, And I, when you've travelled and, and you see all these big brick, like, stone homes that are going to be standing for, like, a thousand years, and we've got a lot of work to do in Australia, like, but we... We don't have to live as rough, you know, like we can really make good food and good wine because we're growing it and we're making it. And it's the wealth that we have just by having access to good food and good wine and good company is all fulfilling, isn't it? Like what more could you want? Yeah, we are. We are very lucky. And so what on earth is next for Outback Lamb? It feels like you've done so much and come so far in three years. What's next? Well, and I, if I say it here, then I'll have to do it. <laughs> but um, I really would like to get a small processing facility on the place and, and a little factory where we really try and utilise all of the animal and, and value add to every area of it. So not just doing pies and sausage rolls, but you know, being able to supply people with a leg of lamb and that sort of thing if we're doing the whole volume and to, you know, maybe make lamb koftas and do meatballs and all that sort of thing that we can supply to independent supermarket and local corner stores and all that sort of thing where it's, you know, branded Outback Lamb and that's really what I want, what we'll be doing next, I guess. Fabulous. Will that add depth to your farm tour as well? I guess so, although I, I don't know, we may have to have some sort of proviso, to, you know, if we're having a, a processing day, <laughs> I don't know if that's like we for growing up on a farm we're all you know like it's a a natural part of life to kill a sheep to provide for your family and I think that's part of what we love to do as well nobody loves killing a sheep but it's what makes abattoirs the big commercial abattoirs pretty confronting places for anybody anyway so it's kind of nicer to think and maybe even in a post-covid world where we really develop regional areas I know I do a lot with the Parkshire Council and they've got it developing as a regional hub. It'll ultimately have an airport where people will uh, export their stuff from parks, you know, to all corners of the world. And maybe Outback Lamb and a lot of other small businesses that are just starting up now will be really part of that. Oh, what an exciting time. Well, I can't wait to watch it all happen. But in the short term, I'm going home with a box of Outback Lamb sausage rolls to enjoy over the weekend. And I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah, we're doing the lamb sausage rolls and lamb pies and they've been pretty popular. Like we like them and it's I'm teaching myself not to be apologetic. They're kind of expensive for a sausage roll and a pie, but they're also, you know, really premium quality. They've got a chock full of lamb and, you know, lamb is an expensive commodity. So I I can't apologise for that, but all I can do is say that it's the kind of food that I'm happy to feed to my own children. I try not to eat too many, (laughs) but they're really tasty. They're really tasty and it's really convenient just to have a few in the freezer. This is the first time I've done it. We've just done a harvest pack and I did deliveries to Narromine and Dubbo for people to, you know, wrap in tinfoil and slip on the manifold and heat through. Perfect. Well-timed, well-timed. So how do people get hold of some Outback Lamb? 
Yep, just go to the webpage and you can contact me through the mobile there or the email addresses. And we'll, I guess as we scale, we'll do an online store and that type of thing. But pretty much it's just by ordering directly to me at the moment. Yeah, gosh. Okay, well, thanks. It's been so good to talk to you today, Fiona. I've really enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it too, Jill. Thanks very much. No worries. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.